Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rice and Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Osobo, who's the founder of Cutbox, which provides high-quality, affordable haircuts through leveraging haircuts, and they call themselves the world's first tech-led power chain. Welcome to the show, Oz. Thanks, Rohit. Pleasure to be on here. Awesome. So you know, uh, uh, you 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 started at Warwick, uh, and then you you build this company. How did you get into 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 this world of startups? What got you excited to uh, you know start your own thing? Well. I'd say from a very young age, about 20, while I was studying engineering at the University of Warwick, right. I, 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 was, I was doing engineering and I started realizing that the engineering of systems and of businesses is something that I want to do. And ultimately, a business operates similar to like a machine would operate in, in terms of an organization. And from then, it's always been my goal to create a massive business, like a billion dollar business. Um, consumer facing because I like that side of things it really excites me and I was lucky enough to be part of my first startup business while I was I was at uni and that okay. really got me to grips with the fundamentals of running something um, and, and and since then I I looked for opportunities to learn as much as I could about running businesses so I moved abroad I went I worked for a leading roller shutter and blinds company in central Europe and that taught me a hell of a lot about what it takes to actually run a, a business um, and grow it, uh, the workload required from the owners and the multifaceted skill set required. And I, I started as well, co-founded a food and catering business and started seeing this opportunity in, in barbering. Um, and, and that kind of came through um, a, a software app that I was selling at the time. And it gave a really good picture of the barber industry because I was just coming into contact with so many barbers and so many customers. And you just started seeing the shortfalls of the industry. And all the time I'm wondering, where is the Starbucks? Where is the McDonald's in this industry? There was none. Oh, yeah. Well, we better build it then. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, before the call, we also mentioned that uh, you have a crowdfunding campaign, which is on Crowdcube, you know, can can you explain more about the campaign yeah absolutely so um, we are launching a crowdfunding campaign to essentially enable us to open a few more stores we've currently got five stores to open a couple more um reach um further increase our revenue run rate to a point where we can raise a very big series a round okay now our, our goal and uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if all the listeners will be familiar with this, but you've got brands like Blank Street Coffee or Flash Coffee. These are physical brands that are taking on venture capital investment to rapidly scale. Now we're backed by VCs ourselves, and we want to do similar such rounds. And this crowdfund enables us to reach that state. So it's a super exciting time for Cutbox as we hopefully go from five stores to uh, fifty and in 18, 24 months or so. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you know, uh, before the call, you know, we, we discussed about my experience at OU Rooms, which was a marketplace uh, yeah, yeah. as well as uh, at Hyber. But, uh, but, you know, a cut box uh, is not a marketplace. So, uh, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, how did how did you, uh, you know, get investments from 
uh, from tech VCs, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Fuel Ventures. They've, they've, they've invested as a cap desk and parallel and a few other, uh, you know, high quality uh, companies. Uh, what is what was the fundraising strategy for you to invite you know high tech uh, uh, investors to to get into uh, get into the seed round? One of the things to be really focused about and that ourselves and our investors believe in is the customer experience and promoting that customer journey and that being associated with the brand. Now there are many types of business. In fact. That software business that I was working with when we first started is all trying to create a marketplace in the industry, but that doesn't actually solve all of the custom problems that people come across and create this trusted brand. So it's really selling them on that, on that customer journey that you're going to deliver an above a, 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 a massively improved customer experience on what is what is currently out there. And that is what enables you to accrue that kind of investment as well as showing the market size for what's going on we're very lucky because ultimately everybody needs their haircut so it's yeah. <laughs> you know you've got 14 million men every month getting the haircut in the uk alone oh. uh, and it's not something that just goes in a recession or anything you need to get your haircut as part of daily life so, okay and that's ultimately convincing our, our, our investors that even you know new hires anyone coming forward that this is this is something that will be a part of everybody's daily life, just as a McDonald's or a Starbucks. Mm, yeah, no, I, I really like the thought process, you know, and, um, you know, when I was back in India, I think my, my haircut would cost anything from two to four pounds. And I was I was shocked to, <laughs> to see the pricing out here in the in the UK. But yeah. uh, but how, how do you look at, you know, pricing structure? Because mm. uh, when I went to your website, I think the pricing was very affordable. And I, mm. I was quite intrigued that, you know, you were running... Uh, you know, five shops in, uh, uh, I think a couple of them in London, a couple of them in, in Bristol, London. but yeah. how did you look at, you know, creating the pricing strategy, which will, you know, make you break even and how do you, how do you look at scaling it up from there? Pricing is a super interesting topic. We can literally talk for the whole podcast about yeah. it, but in reality, when you're looking at pricing, you need to price in a way that people can afford the haircut they might pay slightly a bit above above average so that it's not the same as for example a 10 to 15 pound cut that you would get in your local barber store but then the service is improved you've got a booking system the barbers are trained it's a professionalized environment so that's one element of it the other element is to, you also need to look at your competitors as well and how how these guys are pricing so and the options that a lot of customers have is they can get a go to their local, which is probably relatively cheap. But they've got to wait for a long time in the store. The customer experience isn't quite there. Or the other alternative, especially here in central London, is to go to a high priced premium place where you get yeah. that experience. Okay. Um, and those can be anywhere upwards of £35, £40 sort of priced points, um, which prices a lot of people out. So yeah. what we see is a market for people who want convenient affordable haircuts and a premium haircut experience or at least some of those elements for affordable prices okay got it and 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 do you only focus on 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 men haircut or is it uh women and kids are also something which you 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 look at uh, in in the future right now our focus is on the men's grooming okay 
and that's very important because this is a very fast growing industry without any big players in it. Yeah. It's set to be $80 billion by 2024. And men's attitude towards grooming their own personal beauty, it's changing They're increasing customer average spend, all of these various things contribute to a massively growing industry. We don't just see ourselves as doing haircuts, it's products, franchising, barber schools, all of these things tying into it. Now, we also offer haircuts to kids as well within our store, but we don't do women's, not yet, because that market is very saturated. But that oh. isn't to say sometime down the line we wouldn't do it. Oh, I see. Interesting. And, uh, and, and you know, I think the uh, one of the most crucial pieces uh, in the business would be the quality of, of haircuts and, you know, and the yeah. barbers. Uh, how do you how do you get to decide you know uh, whom are you going to int- uh, whom are you going to recruit what's the interview process and how do you train your barbers so that they they uh, when they cut then you know somebody knows it's it's from the cut box barbers style yeah brilliant no, really good question there's a few fa- there's a few aspects to this the first bit is on the recruitment side and how we're getting people on board and it actually starts more with a character recruitment, so a character phone call. And this is really important that the, the, their, their character fits in with that of the store, that they uphold certain values, that they're hardworking, they're friendly, they're kind, they work as a team with the rest of the teams, because these teams operate in small units. You're talking units no bigger than five people, so everybody needs to get on with each other. And that's right. all part of creating a very positive and uplifting atmosphere in store, because if you've got happy barbers, then you're going to have happy customers. If you've got barbers who don't necessarily get on with each other, then it's going to it's going to rub off on the customers. That's the first thing. We, of course, do things like trade tests to, to check the certain service standards. You'll be actually surprised to know that there isn't actually a, a an accreditation or like a, qual- a standardized qualification for cutting air in the, here in the UK. Oh. So what we've had to do is we've had to map out the trade test exactly what is required for a barber to cut at the at the level that, that we need them to cut and then we assess them based on those criteria assessment doesn't stop there and it's benefited by our technology so our technology on the front end is the customer booking system on the back end we get a huge amount of data data on barber utilization rates their two-month retention rate all of these various different things and that enables us to identify what is what does a quality barber look like? Um, for example, we see customer reviews coming in before they go to Google. So we can see all these various things and then we can take action and coaching to get them better. Now, one of the final things there is the training piece. Now, while we do do in-store training at the moment, one of our plans in the future post-series A round is to build out a barbering school, which acts as a cutbox finishing academy and ensures that quality across our stores. And this will be a vital part of our growth strategy going forward. Got it. Interesting. You you talked about barbing school. Uh, are there are there any you know accredited barbing schools? Uh, which uh, because I, I presume a lot of lot of people when they uh, graduate from from school or college they get into these schools. But are they accredited, or do you think that's that's a, that that is something which is not done in the UK? Uh, yeah, there are there are several different types of accreditation um within within barbering schools and there are barbering like london barbering school london school of barbering is 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 a, is a very big and known school i think it's the biggest one in the uk now with with that said 
we want to bring people in and train them to cut and do a service in the way that Cutbox Quality Barber would do that. Okay. So that's part of the reason why we're looking at we're we're looking at doing our own. And we've we've seen other brands abroad do a similar kind of thing too, to great effect. Got it. And uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you started off with London. Um, uh, uh, was Westfield the first London store you had? Uh, we actually um, we started with a Bristol stores, and it was, was it? yeah, yeah, and it was House of Fraser in Bristol, Cabot Circus. That was our first shop, and okay. it was yeah, it was a great thing. It was uh, it was it was actually you know we it was almost like an mvp barber store you had it in the middle of the men's retail section just to see if this concept worked and yeah luckily it, it did and then we managed to scale from there interesting and yeah you know what made you choose bristol because you know i, I worked in a in a marketplace where you're focusing on london and bristol but uh, bristol is a very interesting market but what what got you started there bristol was super interesting because we were fortunate enough to be able to um strike up a um a, a relationship with house of fraser and, and they have a, a, a great fantastic store in bristol um which was which was brilliant and we looked at the city and we thought okay there's a lot of barbershops in bristol it's very competitive but on the flip side it's a student town it's a young demographic pretty yeah. affluent there's people there. there's a, a lot of things going on great nightlife things like this these are all triggers for our customers to go and get haircuts it's probably a really good place to start so started out there and yeah it was it was it was great to begin there got our first few barbers in and then got going got it. and and you know how were you able to get your you know first customers in once uh or did you leverage the brand of house of phasers uh in, in Bristol and you know what was your strategy to you know get in your first few customers in London no, well, there was a bit of that there was quite a few few things going on because we so we completed our fundraise in the middle of the pandemic back oh, in okay. 2020 okay. so retail wasn't open we 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 closed our first round from SFC Capital December 2020 and our first store opened April 2021 and that was when retail opened the okay. first big uplift from customers was actually just this pent-up demand to get a haircut. And mm. I remember the first week for our store, we opened up our booking system and we literally got 100 bookings across maybe just a, a few days. It was carnage when we first opened and loads of, loads of customers coming in for their bookings, everything that enabled us to capture a lot of people. One of the things we did do was we chose a price point that was very competitive in the area to begin with. Right. And that that was, we did that on purpose so that we could get customers coming in. And we also, um, we 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 were also relatively generous in terms of the salaries we were giving compensation packages for our first barbers to make sure we got really good barbers in that area, and and that enabled us to get a really strong foothold and build a reputation as a brand in Bristol to launch our second store there. Okay. Okay. Got it. And and. When do you get to decide that you you should launch in a second city or a second market, uh, or, or was it was it a you know a strategy to to launch, uh, yeah, you know x number of of barber shops every year? Well, what, what's the what's the strategy behind? So one of the key things when 
looking at where to launch a barber store is what makes a good barber store how do you define how do you define that okay we do a lot of analysis a lot of data analysis of things like football demographics etc in an area now looking at bristol that's certainly a place we'll continue to expand in but what helped us with london was that we were developing a lot of relationships with retailers and landowners people like westfield or you know the people in in in, in victoria station um, such that we we started getting these opportunities and it was a matter of looking at that looking at how operationally we could run these stores and then actually selling out deals with these people and 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 and, and getting our stores set up there now when you're further expanding you need to look very carefully geographically how how you're going to do that because there is an operational overhead of you know, if I were to open a store, if, if you know, if we were to open a store now in Edinburgh or something, it would be a challenge to, to manage that. Yeah. So there's there's an operational machine that you have to consider, but generally keeping it sort of the south of the country, Bristol, London, very easy to get to between both is a good start. Mm. Got it. And, uh, you know, currently you have around five stores and uh, you, you, you're looking to expand to 100 more which which cities would you would you focus on would it be in the uk or are you looking to you know expand internationally uk first major cities would expand definitely further within london and the home counties and whatnot okay. um, then further afield we'll probably target the major cities to begin with and then go from there okay okay got it as, as a as another expansion mechanism so we expand through our own stores but we'll also look after we reach a certain critical mass to start franchising out our locations as well. Okay. It's, it's, okay. A, it's a great means of career progression for our own barbers, as well as for any other barbers who want to start their own shop too. And yeah. these people are from really, really skilled and they, they need the support in terms of the business side of things, which we can give as well as these tech systems that we're constantly developing that help them run their stores. Okay. Okay. Got, got it. And and when you when you talk about tech systems, you know what what in particular you know uh, makes you different from other barber shops. Uh, and you know that's I mean that's one of obviously you have data analysis, which is quite different from what other barber shops would have. But uh, you, you know what could you what are you doing different from others? I'd say there are many features of what we're doing that is different, which I can go into. But I think the biggest difference is the mindset. Okay. the team and how we're approaching it because constantly we're looking for various innovations things that helps the store run better as a system so i'll give you an example is we recently introduced subscriptions in our stores this is something that i actually don't think is done by maybe a handful of barbers in the country okay and it's been to absolutely brilliant effect so we launched it maybe about five six weeks ago we really sold it to about 10 percent of our client base um and that number is continuing to go up with a relatively low churn. And these are things that's always looking at the customer experience. How can we optimize this as best as possible on each aspect of that customer journey? Now, in terms of the, the backend data stuff, that is very powerful because that enables us to run the stores with fewer levels of management than you would otherwise need. Um, which is which is super interesting but we do have a few further plans on the on the customer side with the tech 
uh, to over the coming coming months and years. Got it. And uh, you know, you run a, a physical company. Uh, how, how could founders who run a physical business be strategic enough to build moats uh, around their business? Um, interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting question. So you're you're effectively asking how how you build a sustainable advantage. Yeah, I mean, can they build moats from from day one? Can they? Yeah. I think uh, I, I think you have to you have to really analyze the customer journey and what's important for the customer. Okay. Why are they getting what start if you start with because you know, say for example, a, a lot of barber stores, the owner was a barber before they you know, they they may have known people who started a barber store and they just do it the way they've always known. But you have yeah. to challenge that by looking at starting the fundamental, what is it that the customer wants? And then working from there. Now, with that said, you, you probably won't build a, a massive moat from day one. Yeah. And that's why a huge bit of our strategy is to move fast, which is why we've gone down the VC route. Otherwise, we would have just made a barbershop, you know, and then just started that and then opened another one and taken several years to go from yeah. there. But moving fast is super important because that gets the brand out there because you need to be known as synonymous with whatever it is that that, that that you will do at least in 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 this world of of what we do and it's kind of with the with venture capital and, and whatnot if you're really trying to dominate an industry got it and yeah you know, I quickly just wanted to understand uh what's the what, what's the revenue numbers and how much time does it take for you to break even with each uh store yeah yeah so for, for each store the, the, I mean, so our total revenue number is closing in on about million revenue run rate at the moment, which is quite an important number for us. Yeah. For each store, this is a really important question because we've been going through several optimizations of our locations. Okay. We think through a standard barber store, your average revenue number per month should be about 25, 26K, and you should take about three months to break even. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and, 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 and what that means is that You've got lower revenues and probably lower profit and EBITDA than a coffee chain, but you you can you can open a hell of a lot of these things because you know there's just market everywhere for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 um it's a it's a it's a super interesting model. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And and are the margins higher for uh for the uh for the barber cuts uh? And the products, uh, or, or do you think it's, uh, do you, would you know what's the revenue multiple for uh, the products that you sell and, and the cuts you do? The, the product, the product should be higher. Okay. Um, and the, but, the, but the thing with the products is to get it that high, um, you, you really, you really need to invest a lot in terms of product development. Okay. Okay. Cutter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cutter. Interesting. And, um, yeah, you know, especially for, for those, uh, founders, you know, listeners who have not called the product market fit, uh, what's the single biggest mistake, you know, founders make while they're searching for a product market fit? Ah, interesting. Um, I'll, 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 I'll tell you a story with this. So I, 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 I was involved in a project um, where we were 
we were effectively trying to bring a product to market. Okay. One of the biggest issues we had was we had this engineer's mindset where you effectively, you're trying to perfect the product without taking it out to market as an M- MVP version and, and testing it out. And I think the biggest mistake you can make is by focusing too much on the product development and not getting anything to market soon enough. And that may be something as simple as saying, we can pre-sell some something to do with our product. Like we're pre-selling something to see if people will buy it. And if they buy it, then great. If they don't buy it, then we've also learned something. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's trying to find that essentially, mm. uh, which, I, which I think is, is really, really important. Got it. And and when it comes to uh uh you know, you know product market fit, what's what's the most important elements of messaging? Uh... I I think I think the most important philosophy behind messaging is that it's really simple okay. and easily understandable. People need to know what you do and how that will benefit them at a glance, especially in a consumer product. I'm talking about especially. But I think in any pretty much anything, it needs to be really clear what the what the value proposition is. Oh, okay, got it. And, and especially, you know, since you since you work in totally different markets uh, right now, uh, do you, do you have different messaging for uh, for your customer personas in Bristol as well as in London, or do you do you have a have a constant messaging uh, which resonates with with both audiences in both the cities? We have generally a constant messaging because the customer markets have similar types of behaviors. I see. With that said, it, it is sometimes a little bit nuanced depending on locations. For example, in our Westfield location, you've got customers who've got slightly longer dwell time, um, whereas somewhere like Victoria, uh, they are in a rush. So yeah. it's it, it, those are some slight nuances that you have to get across to people. But yeah, it's... It is generally similar customer behavior, which is why I I, I really like business businesses like Cutbox because it's very it's a very it's a very simple um, business at, at the end of it, but all the complexity comes in the in the in the back end, like how it's being run and the efficiencies that you're driving it. Oh, okay, got it. Interesting. And I I, I want to talk about uh, talent acquisition because you know uh, you have. Uh, not only barbers, but you also have operators who, who run the business. Uh, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned in, when it comes to acquiring the best of talent um, across all the uh, you know stores that you run in? Central team operators, you mean? You're talking about like people running the shops. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I'd say the biggest thing when acquiring pe- when acquiring that kind of talent is to not be afraid to hire people who are more senior mm-hmm. early on. I think this is very important because otherwise you end up being in a position where you have to hire twice because the business in a business like this is changing all the time, increasing, growing because of that, the needs, the demands of people change. So if you get someone who's fine for March 2022 or whatever, or you get someone fine for February 2022, by December 2022, the business is completely different. And then yeah. it's uh it's it's a different, it's a different beast. So and and oftentimes it's difficult for people to go along with the ride. So you, 
I think the biggest lesson is to hire more senior people sooner. Oh, interesting. Got it. Yeah. And, and you know, I just wanted to follow up on that. Like, uh, would, would you hire, you know, inexperienced hustlers or experienced uh, people when you're looking to you to to scale up uh why i ask is that because you know a lot of founders especially when it comes to pre-seed or seed they don't have a lot of money to spend on uh uh, uh on a uh, you know expensive senior hire but mm. uh would you advise them to hire somebody who's who's very young but who has got a lot of enthusiasm because uh you know uh especially when when it comes to young hustlers they have a lot of enthusiasm they may not really understand experience uh so you know what advice would you give, would, you, would you give to those founders who you know just raised pre-seed and they can't hire somebody who's very senior i would say it it depends on the role for which they're hiring if the okay. role is very specific right a senior person is very good and i understand when we say they don't have necessarily the money to hire this person right but i also think that a more fluid view of money is really important. And, and what I mean by that, because I know that's a very abstract term, is that if you get on a super senior person and they make a massive difference to your top line, bottom line, then your ability to raise funding, it becomes almost easy. So they've yeah. paid for themselves and you're not really going to run out of money because you're going to raise more funding into the business anyway. Now, with that said, for generalist hires, and if it's a very general role, I I like hustlers who have a lot of drive. Mm. A, re- a really good example of this actually is one of our barbers in Bristol, who's now the area manager there mm. and has been promoted through the company. You can see he's got so much drive. He wants to move forward. And that's brilliant to see. And that that's great. And that's part of what, what we want to do here in Cutbox. Got it, got it. And uh, what have been some of your biggest mistakes when it comes to, you know, hiring people? Not hiring senior enough in specific okay. roles. Oh, that's okay. literally the biggest, That's that. I think that's the biggest error that, that you can make. And if you hire too junior, the issue that comes up is that they, they cost their cost plus the additional expense of your time, your co-founders' time, your team's time, because you're going to have to pick up work for them because ultimately startup work yeah. needs to get done. So somebody's got to do it. And yeah. that's that's a really big issue. And and I think it's it's very hard to go through hiring without making any mistakes. So I wouldn't berate yeah. anybody that does. And I, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be harsh on myself as a founder or anyone else. I don't recommend they do that. I do recommend that you identify that you've done that and act swiftly. And that might mean, unfortunately, letting the person go, but you've got, you, you've got to do it really quickly. It's very mm-hmm. important to move fast on that. Oh, interesting. And, and what advice would you have for, you know, 2023 graduates? Would you ask them to work in a startup or, or work in a bigger company? You mean if they want to be a founder, startup founder? I uh, know uh, uh, if they want to, uh, you know, work for some time and then start something, would you, uh, would you suggest them to, you know, work in a bigger company uh, and learn the ropes or would you suggest them to, you know, work in a startup? 
No, I, I, I think I think they need to. I think you really need to work in a startup. Okay. Or, and and you need to have experience, get experience, trying things and failing at things. Okay. I think that resilience is a really important character trait for people who do well in startups. Got it. Interesting. And um, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh, interesting. Uh, I would say it's Shoe Dog Night by Phil Knight. I, I really like that book because it, 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 it you, you really follow him through that that journey. Yeah. And you see the successes and the failures, the pitfalls and the level of determination and drive required to succeed. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's one of my favorite books. I'm going to put that in the in the show notes. And um, you know, if you could go back in time when you started Cardbox, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I would have hired a very senior operator. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Great way. Yeah. Got it. And uh, what what's your favorite online tool? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. <laughs> I would say. My newest favorite online tool is Chat GPT because it gives me things. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite tools as well. <laughs> and yeah, uh, uh, you know, what's the best way people people can reach out to you and know more about the uh, the crowdfunding campaign that you're running on? Uh, is it on CrowdCube? Is it on CrowdCube? Yeah, you can reach out to me on my LinkedIn, Oz Obo. Or you can find us on Crowdcube under Cutbox. If you're on Crowdcube and search Cutbox, we'll be on that. Okay, wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, well, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on.